Praise the Lord. Well, I hope you all had a very Merry Christmas. And of course, we're praying for a very Happy New Year. The last Sunday of 2018, it's really almost hard to believe, but it is the truth. So we're getting ready to leave an old year, come into a new year. And so I want to encourage you today, I want to challenge you today to look ahead as we go into this new year. I could say I want to motivate you today, but I'm really not a motivator. In fact, pastors and preachers aren't really called to be motivators. We're really more accurately described as messengers. We're messengers. Uh, the source of our motivation in all things has to originate in God. I can motivate you to do something. I can encourage you to do something. I can, you know, really rah-rah, get in there and cheer for you. But if our motivation is just what comes out of man, it's not a motivation that's ultimately going to last. It, in fact, will ultimately fail. We're often motivated to do things for the wrong reasons. We can be motivated by destructive things. We can be motivated out of guilt. We can be motivated out of anger, bitterness. We can be motivated out of greed, out of a desire to control, to have power. All of those things can motivate us to do and accomplish amazing things. That's not good. That's actually sinful if that is what is motivating us. Fear is a strong motivator. In fact, the scripture teaches us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So there is a fear that is healthy, the fear of the Lord. But if fear is our motivation, we will soon find out that fear cannot sustain us. Love must be our motivation. The Bible says God is love. John writes this in his first epistle, 1 John. God is love. Therefore, the love of God must be our motivation. To say God is our motivation is to say love is our motivation. And to say love is our motivation really and truly means that God is our motivation. True love from the true God, not the world's kind of love, not the world's definition of love, but the biblical definition of love. Who love truly is, what love truly is. As believers, our first calling is not to be motivators, but to be messengers. And we're all messengers. We're all called and we're all commanded to preach, to make known the gospel. You might not do it behind a pulpit on a Sunday morning, but your life should communicate the truth and the glory, and the goodness of the gospel. And so we're messengers, and we convey that message with our words. We convey that message with our actions. We convey it in all sorts of ways. We convey it through our life, through all of our life. And our motivation must come from the truth of the gospel and the power of the Spirit, not from the emotion of man and the power of the flesh. It's not good enough that we come to church and we just want to get emotionally charged. 
Because that is not going to sustain us. And the purpose of coming to church, we used to say this back in the day. You know, we had the Sunday morning service. We had the Sunday night service. We had the Wednesday night service to get people over the hump so they could finish out the week. That's really a terrible way to think about things. We're not trying to just get over the hump. Every day is a new day. His mercies are new every morning. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. He said, sufficient for the day are its troubles. So we're not living today trying to get over the hump tomorrow. We're living today for the glory of God. Our motivation to live, to move, and to have our being is because we are in Christ. Because we understand, though not fully, but we have an understanding of what God has saved us from and what God has saved us to in Jesus Christ. And that love of God that was gifted to us by grace through faith is the love that should motivate us in our life as we live to the glory of God. So as we go into a new year, as your pastor, my hope and my prayer, and I hope it is yours as well, is that Christ's fellowship will seek to be more purposeful, more prepared, and more powerful in worship, in prayer, and in discipleship. I could, I could think of all kinds of things, but those were three things that just really struck me and came to me because these are three things that are so foundational when we talk about being a Christian or being the church, worship, prayer, and discipleship. And in all of that, keeping Christ central in all things, that our lives are gospel-centered in everything we do, from our work to our play to the way we raise our children, everything, that our lives would be centered in the gospel. And I believe that if we commit to this individually and corporately, I believe we will reap the good fruit of it in all of our life. In all of our life. You know, one of the things that we very often do is we segregate our lives. So many people segregate Sunday morning and they say, well, you know, for an hour or two on Sunday morning, I'm going to give that time to God. That's my God time. And that God time might be in a house of worship like this, or it may be out on the lake on a boat. But that's, that's such a wrong way of thinking about our life and who we are. God, we don't give God a couple of hours one day a week and say, we're good, we've given God his time. No, you belong to the Lord. He bought you, he purchased you. There's no part of your life that is yours any longer if you belong to Jesus. Now, we don't like that. Especially as Americans, we do not like that reality because we want to be in control of our lives. We want to own our lives. We want to own everything about it. And yeah, I can give God some of it. But to think that I'm not my own, that I belong to God, that I've been bought, with a price, that my body, my 
soul, my spirit belongs to Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches us. And so our worship, our prayer, our obedience to Jesus is not just something we do for an hour or two or a few hours a week. It is what should define our life in everything that we do. Matthew 22, 36 through 40. This is Jesus answering the question. And here's the question in verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Father, I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and open our minds. And let this gospel message, let this good news, Lord, be implanted in our hearts. Let it change us and transform us. May it conform us to the image of the Son more and more. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. That you would take us and use us for your glory. As you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you know, that's really a dangerous prayer to pray if you're not prepared for God to answer it. And we oftentimes throw up prayers like that and we say, God, use me as you see fit. And I think sometimes we pray those prayers and we don't, we don't sometimes realize that God may just answer that prayer. And he will indeed use us as he sees fit, which may be very different than the way we see ourselves being used by God. But this goes back to this reality that we're not our own, that we belong to Jesus. Every one of you here who confesses Jesus as your Lord, you need to understand this. You are not your own. It doesn't matter who you work for. It doesn't matter who signed your paycheck. It doesn't matter what pledge of allegiance you made. You belong to Jesus. And everything and everyone else is secondary to that. But it is so easy for us to live our lives apart from that reality. It's so easy for us to get caught up in the busyness of life and forget who we truly belong to. Jesus is asked this question, and they're trying to trap him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And this was the answer Jesus gave. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. Jesus reduced everything down. What the religious leaders of Jesus' day had done in making the law and the worship of God so complicated. Jesus reduces it back down to something so simple. I didn't say it was easy. I said it was simple. It's like discipleship. Discipleship is not complicated. It's just hard work. 
It's kind of like digging a hole. Digging a hole is not real complicated, but if you've ever dug a hole of any depth, especially in this black dirt that we live in here, you know it is really hard work. Nothing complicated about it. Don't need a degree in rocket science to do it, but you better be prepared for the hard work that's going to be required. And that's really what discipleship is about. And, and this is what Jesus is doing here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the religious leaders of the day had, had piled tradition upon tradition upon tradition upon all the law and all the things that God had given them and they had made this system that was so, so complicated and so overwhelming. And when they ask Jesus this question, he, he just gives the simplicity that we are to simply love God with all of our heart and love our neighbor. Or as Augustine said, love God and do as you please. Which if you aren't paying attention, you might think is a controversial statement because how can you love God and do as you please? But if you truly love God, then you can do as you please. And those are not contradictory statements. It's just that we, by default, in our sinfulness, fall into this idea that if I do what I please, then I'm doing contrary to what God pleases. But if we love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength, if we love God with everything that we have, then we should be able to do exactly what we please and not be contrary to Loving God. You get it? So this response of Jesus is informing us what the first and great commandment encompasses. It encompasses not only loving God, but it encompasses loving your neighbor. And within that are these things that we're talking about today. Worship, prayer, and discipleship. Worship. The word literally means to bow down. I think of worship like this. It's our life lived out in humble, reverent submission before God. I'm living my life bowed before God. In other words, it's not first what I want. Though I'm going to confess to you, I am very often tempted, and I very often fail and do what I want instead of what God wants. That's why I am so very thankful for the grace of God. Because I'm not saved because I get it right all the time, or even most of the time. I'm saved because Jesus got it right. I'm not saved by my good work. I'm saved by the good work of Jesus. And in my depravity, in my failing, and in my falling down, what I do is I look to Jesus, and I confess my weakness and my failings constantly, and I say, oh God, have mercy on me. My faith is not in my ability. My faith is in what Jesus has already done. And that is where your faith should be as well. But that does not remove our desire to do the will of God, to worship Him, to live a life in submission to Him, bowed before Him, giving Him first place, the place He rightly deserves. Prayer is our petition before God. It's, it's really just... Our communion, it's our communication with God. It can be joyful communication. It can be 
communication out of a sense of urgency and need and danger and even fear. It's our seeking the face of God. Not just for God to answer our request. That's what we most often think prayer is about. Me asking God and God answering me the way I want him to. And if I have enough faith and I've done enough good things, surely God is going to hear me and he's going to answer me the way I think. Because we have theologies today that teach that. That if you just have enough faith, God will give you anything you want. Uh, Of course, as long as it's consistent with good morals and clean living. But that's not really what the Bible teaches us that prayer is about. Because ultimately, I believe prayer is about seeking the face of God to align ourselves with the will of God for the glory of God. More than anything, prayer should change us, not change God. Prayer doesn't change God. God doesn't change. Prayer changes us. And discipleship. Discipleship is the command of Jesus to his church. Jesus didn't say go out and make converts. He said, go and make disciples. There's a big difference. You can't convert anybody. Only God can do that. You can't save anybody. Only God can save someone. But you and I are called to make disciples of those God saves. It is the command to go and to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that he commanded. If we love God with our heart, with our soul, and with our mind, and if we love our neighbor as ourselves, we will worship, we will pray, and we will obey Jesus' command to be and to make disciples. These are the heart of why the church is here on the earth. They are the heart of our mission as the people of God in the earth. Worship, prayer, and discipleship are the heart of the mission of Christ's fellowship. That means they are the heart of our mission as individual members and as the greater body of Christ. So let's talk about these three aspects of our walk with God, of who we are. Worship. I said that worship literally means to bow down, to fall down before him. But I want you to think of worship not simply as an act that we commit before God. I want you to think of worship as a lifestyle. It's your lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of humble, reverent submission before God. Exodus 20 verse 3 is the first of the Ten Commandments. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. Our worship sets the tone for our whole life. I want you to realize that your worship didn't begin when Roland read the psalm for the call to worship. Your worship began long before that. Your worship began when you woke up this morning. It began when you went to bed last night. It began, your worship is an ongoing reality whether you realize it or not. Our worship sets the tone for our whole life. We worship all the time. What we give ourselves to, what we surrender to, what we idolize can become gods that we worship. Whether we call them gods, whether we recognize them as gods or not. 
the question we must ask ourselves is where is God in our high or hierarchy of priorities? Where does God fall in the hierarchy of priorities within our life? Is he clearly first? Is he somewhere toward the top? Is he in the middle? Or does he simply fill a spot as convenience allows? Now, you probably, unless someone was really honest, especially someone that professed to be a Christian, they would, they would probably never honestly say, well, you know, God's just kind of wherever he happens to fall as my time allows. Because we don't consciously go around and think that. But if you think about how, how does our life practically work out, for a lot of people who confess faith in Jesus Christ, their life practically works out this way, that God just kind of fills the spot as they open up. The one true and living God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is to be the object of our worship and the focus of our life. If He is not, then our worship is false and our lifestyle is idolatrous. Now, this is what they always say about preaching the gospel in India. You go to India and preach the gospel. The problem in India is not getting people to believe in Jesus. That's not the problem. The problem is getting people to believe only in Jesus. <laughs> getting Jesus to be another God that they pay homage to and worship is not a problem in India. It's convincing them that you can have only one God and it must be the true and living God manifest for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now that's where the Indians will have a problem. Because they have lots of gods and they like adding as many gods as they can to their pantheon of gods because the more gods I have on my side, the more chance I have to make it through this life, right? But that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus is not a way. He's not one of many ways. He is the one and only way. We live in a culture today in which the majority of Americans, they just did this with Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway. They just did their 2018 survey, and the majority of Americans believe, 64%, they believe that God accepts the worship of all religions as valid, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. To translate that into what people believe, what 64% of people surveyed believe is as long as you're sincere in your religious worship, it doesn't really matter who you worship or what you worship. As long as you're sincere, God accepts it. That's a lie. That's not true. There are people today all over the world sincerely worshiping God and they are sincerely wrong and they will not be rewarded for their sincere worship of their false god. God accepts our worship because our worship is brought to Him in Jesus Christ. Exodus 34, 13 and 14. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. 
For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. We don't think of jealousy as, we think of jealousy as being a, a really a, not a positive attribute. Yet the Bible says God is jealous. So, you know, we're tempted to say, because we don't understand sometimes, uh, certainly we very often don't know our Bibles and read our Bibles, and if you heard someone say God is jealous, someone might say, well, that's bad, that's a sin, you know, jealousy is not a good thing. But with God, it's a good thing. When the Bible says God is a jealous God, that's a good thing. When God says he will not tolerate the worship of other gods, lesser God, that's a good thing. Because what it's telling us is that for God's people, there's only one way. And God wants to make sure that we understand that so that we walk in that way. That way that leads to life. God commands our worship of Him and Him alone. And we can offer God our worship now willingly from a submitted heart of love or we will offer it in that day of judgment when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Out of a heartfelt, loving, faith-filled worship will come His blessing with fruitfulness. Our worship should define our life. It is both a private and a public practice. Worship is personal and individual, but it is also public and corporate. God commands our worship in both forms. Worship should always consider God and one another. Just as we cannot love God without loving one another, remember the commandment? Love God and love your neighbor. Jesus linked those together. John links them together in his first epistle when he says, don't tell me that you love God, but you hate your brother. Because if you hate your brother, the love of God cannot be in you. And just as we cannot love God without loving one another, we cannot worship God personally without worshiping him with one another, corporately. Listen to the writer of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider one another to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another in so much more as you see the day approaching. Notice he says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That tells me that part of the reason that we assemble together is for one another. That we consider one another to provoke one another to love and good works. That our presence here together, that our worship here together, that our singing together, that our learning together, that what we do together here is about one another as much as it is about God. If you come to church and your experience in worship is just about you, and we have created that environment, well, you know, the music didn't move me today. I just didn't feel the presence of God in the building today. Well, were you in the building today? Well, yeah, I was. Well, isn't the, doesn't the Bible say God lives in you? 
doesn't say God lives in the building. It says God lives in you. That means if you were in the building, then the presence of God was here. And if you didn't feel him, that's, that's your problem. Because he's either in you or he is not. And if he's not in you, then you got a bigger problem than I can't feel him. And if he is in you, then you need to know that. And you need to know that wherever you go, you carry the presence of God with you. And when you come together as the body of Christ corporately to worship him, that worship is not just about you and God and y'all solo experience together. It's about everybody in the building. It's about one another. And we should come purposing, prepared to provoke one another to love and to good works, to encourage one another. That's what our worship is about. That honors God. That glorifies God. That builds up the body. The point of our worship is to love God as we love and consider one another. It is just as valid to say that our worship is to love and consider one another as we love and consider God. The Bible teaches us that we cannot do one without the other. Jesus taught us about this about our worship and its relationship to God and to one another in the great commandment when he says this is the greatest commandment this is the great commandment love God and if you love God you will love your brother that means when you come to worship God you're not just considering God you're also considering one another and you're here not only to worship God but the Bible says you're here to provoke one another to love and to good work if we love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, then we will put nothing above him, and we will love our neighbor as ourselves. Whether we are helping them dig that hole in the backyard or whether we are all together singing and worshiping on a Sunday morning, both of those are loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor is not just helping them in their time of need. Loving your neighbor is being here for your neighbor considering your neighbor, provoking your neighbor by your very presence to love and good works. When we do that, our worship is true. It's biblical. When we worship in any other mindset, if our worship is just about us and what I'm going to get, it's all about me. It's all about me, Jesus. That is false and idolatrous worship. That puts you at the center of worship. What Jesus did was say, love God and love your neighbor. Well, where am I in that, Jesus? What about me? Listen, if you love God and you love your neighbor, you're going to be taken care of. You're going to receive more joy, more fulfillment, more from that than you could ever receive if you just go out in life trying to get all you can get for yourself. Purposeful, prepared, and powerful worship that is true will always do both. It will love and consider God, and it will love and consider one another. It will be both private and individual. Just as importantly, it will be public and corporate as a witness to our faith and to the glory of God. Prayer. Now, prayer and worship, they, they, just, they just go hand in hand. To seek the face of God, to align ourselves with his will for his glory, we're commanded to pray without ceasing. We're to live life with an attitude of constant prayerfulness. 
We should pray for large things and small things. We should never hesitate to pray concerning all things. I just heard a testimony over the weekend of someone that went to a hotel room. It was a mother and a daughter, and the daughter is a very small stature, and the mother went into the bathroom, and the door wouldn't quite close, and so she just slammed the door shut, and then she couldn't get the door open. I mean, she could not get the door open. And it's late at night, and her daughter, who's 21, looks like she's about 16. And the mother's like, I couldn't send my daughter out. We're, you know. So the daughter's like on a chair trying to kick the door at their feet. They can't get the door open. And after about 10 minutes of not being able to get the door open, the daughter says to the mother, Mother, you're always praying. Did you pray about it? And she said, well, no, I didn't. And she said, I prayed to the Lord. And she said, I am not kidding you. She said, I turned the handle on that door, and that door just opened. She said, I didn't have to pull it. I didn't have to tug on it. She said, I mean, it was like it was never, ever stuck. I prayed, and the door opened. And I said, you know what? It sounds like God is showing you that he can open the doors that you can't. Which can apply to all kinds of things, right? But the point is this. God is concerned about everything that we're concerned about. And there's nothing we should not. Be willing to take to God in prayer, even a stuck door in a hotel room. God loves his children to call upon his name and to acknowledge our need of him in all things. That's not weakness. In fact, it's just the opposite. That is us standing firm in the Lord and in the power of his might. Powerful prayer is not intensely emotional prayer. It's not long prayer. It's not loud prayer. It's not praying in tongues. Powerful prayer is simply praying the will of God sincerely and earnestly from a purposeful and prepared heart. Is your heart prepared? Paul, Paul wrote to his spiritual son, Timothy. He said, Timothy, be instant in season and out of season. In other words, he said, be, be ready all the time. Be prepared. Well, how do we do that? Well, we do that through our lifestyle of worship, and we do that through our consistent, faithful persistent praying powerful prayer is praying in faith for god's will consistent with god's word to be done his will to be done how do we know the will of god we'll read the word of god that's a major place to start right there read his word and he will reveal his will to you it's knowing that god hears us because he has opened the way for us to come before his throne of grace by the blood of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus. Powerful prayer has nothing to do with our power, how powerful we feel, how powerful we sound. It has nothing to do with that because it's not our power, it's the power of God. I love what the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians when he is writing to them, and he reminds them, when I came to you, I didn't come in, in power with great swelling words of wisdom. He said, I came to you in fear, in trembling, in weakness. I came to you. And I simply gave you the message of the gospel, and your faith is testimony of the power of the Spirit working in you. Because it had nothing to do with the delivery of the message. It was the demonstration of the Spirit and power testified by your faith. A 
It's the power of His Spirit that works in us, that intercedes on our behalf. When we don't know how to pray and what to pray, the Spirit is always praying. The Spirit is always interceding. Powerful prayer is confessing our weaknesses in the presence of His strength. Jesus taught us to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13, this is where we have what's recorded, what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. And he says, look, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't stand out in the public and pray these long prayers and, and, and don't do it for a show. But go into your room, go into your private place and pray to your Father in heaven. He hears you and he will answer you. And then Jesus in verse 9, he says, In this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts and forgive us our debtors. And do not let, lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. We could spend a year teaching on just that prayer right there. And that's not a prayer for us just to... to to say out loud is some formula or some incantation. I think it is a prayer we should pray. I think it's a powerful prayer we can pray. But I think the prayer also teaches us very important principles about what we are praying and why we are praying. And I want to draw your attention to verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The correct posture of prayer is from a heart of loving faith bowed in worship and the prayer the lord teaches us begins with worship hallowed be thy name our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name holy is your name worship and prayer go hand in hand worship must include prayer and prayer should never be offered apart from our worship of the one that we are petitioning this is true whether we are praying publicly in the church house or privately in our own house and the point of prayer is not simply to get all of our wants and our desires answered in the time and the manner we seek. The point of prayer is the will of God. Remember verse 10. Pray, Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer, our prayer is about the will of God being done. Prayer aligns our own will with the will of God to make them one. Ultimately, the point of prayer is the glory of God. God is glorified when His will is done. So we're to seek God's will in our prayers. That means our prayers should always seek the will of God for the glory of God. That also means that His will may or may not be in line with our own. Has that? I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but have you ever come to realize that what you will is not what God wills? It can be a brutal realization depending on what situation you're dealing with. The point of our consistent and persistent praying is that God would mold and shape our will to align with and ultimately conform to His will. That means we must know the will of God. And the first and most important way that we can know God's will is to read and study and meditate in His Word. If you're a born-again child of God, the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of you. And the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of you to lead you and to guide you and to teach you and to call to remembrance all the things 
that God has put in you through the reading of your word, through the hearing of his word, through the seeing of his word. If we simply pray according to our own feelings and our own desires and our own self-will, we may find that our prayers are not in line with the will of God. If we seek to be in God's will and pray accordingly, we can be assured that God will conform our will to His. You might not know what to pray, but if you just pray this very simple prayer and say, God, I don't know what to pray, but Lord, I want Your will. Lord, align my will to Your will. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done in my life. Let your will be done in my situation. I know what I want, God, but but I want your will. It's just like the prayer of Jesus in the garden when Jesus prayed to the Father and he said, Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. That was the prayer of Jesus. Jesus said, I didn't come to do my will. I came to do the will of the Father. And God is constantly using circumstances and situations and relationships, both bitter and sweet, to mold us and to shape us. God is never limited in the ways that he chooses to work in us, to conform us to the image of Christ, and to bring our will in line with his own. He never wastes a situation or a circumstance, but he works in us by his Spirit through all things. That's really good news. As you are in the midst of a situation or a circumstance that God is working in and through, it may not seem like good news, but it is good news. Because this is the hope and the promise that we have. This is why Paul can write in Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are all the called according to his purpose. Because God is never not working for his will to be done. And if you are his child, you are part of his will. And he wants your life to be conformed and in alignment with his will in all things. And he has promised that he will do that in us. So we see that prayer is not a formula to get us to get all that we desire from God. Prayer is a privilege that God gives to his children so that they become all that he desires for them. Remember, prayer is not you changing God. Prayer is God changing you. The Father's will is our aim in prayer. Jesus did not come to do his own, but he came to do the will of his Father. What we see in Jesus is to become true in us. The will of the Father is to become our will. We are seeking for our will to become joyfully conformed to the will of the Father in all things. This is the power of prayer. We are to be persistent in our prayer. So along with seeking the will of the Father, Jesus also taught us to be persistent in our praying. So we don't just simply pray and then wait and see. The Bible says to pray and to keep praying and to keep praying. This is what Jesus teaches in the parable recorded for us in Luke eleven five 5 through 10. 
And in that parable, there's a man who wakes up in the middle of the night. He has company at midnight. And he goes to his neighbor and he wakes his neighbor up and says, hey, friend, I need some bread. Got company. Guy goes, no chance, buddy. I'm not getting out of bed. My kids are here. They're all asleep. And I am not going to get up and wake my kids up so you can have some bread. He goes, no, you don't understand. I need this bread. I need it for my friends who are coming. He didn't say, I, I, I just am craving bread and thought you might have some at midnight. No, he says, I, I need. And you see in this parable, there's friends and there's real need. And Jesus says the friend got out of bed and he goes down and he gives him the bread that he needs, not because he's his friend, but because of his persistence. So I say to you, verse 9, ask and it will be given. Seek, you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. This parable is about persistence in prayer. We should always persist in our prayers. In our prayers, we should constantly be discerning what it is we are praying for and why we are praying in whose will we are praying. Am I praying my will or am I submitted to the will of God, even if I don't know what that might be at this point in time? The parable is about the work of asking, seeking, and knocking. Prayer is not a magic formula. It's not just an incantation we confess. Prayer is something we do. It's something we labor in with joyful expectation and faith. Just like a farmer who labors to work his field and plant his crops. Purposeful, prepared, and powerful prayer is a labor of love that will produce a harvest of fruit and glory. As the church, we're called to worship and we're called to prayer. And we do that out of a love for the Father. And we do that out of a love for one another because our prayers certainly are not limited to our own needs, our own wants, and our own desires because if we love God and we love one another, then our prayers offered up to God will also be on behalf of one another. And we will pray just as purposefully, just as prepared, and just as powerfully for one another as we would for ourselves. Because that's what we would want our neighbor, our brother, our sister to do for us. If we're in need, how many people do you want praying for you? If your loved one is in need, how many people do you want praying purposefully, prepared, and powerfully on your behalf? Well, you want all you can get, right? Yes. This is the love of God. This is our love for one another. We're not going to talk about discipleship, but I am going to mention discipleship because discipleship goes perfectly with what we're talking about. Because what is discipleship? Well, it's obedience to the command of Jesus. But what are we doing when we're making disciples? We're loving our neighbor is what we're doing. We're loving God and we're loving our neighbor. When you make disciples... As Jesus commands, you are loving God and you are loving your neighbor. Your desire to see a person grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ 
in your work to help them grow in that grace and in that knowledge of Jesus Christ is absolutely an expression of your love for God and your love for your neighbor, that person. And if we truly love God, then we must truly love our neighbor. That means we will truly worship, not just privately, but publicly, not just individually, but corporately. It means we will pray, not just for our own needs, but we will pray for the needs of others, recognizing that our brothers and sisters are members. We are members of one another. We are linked and joined to life in one another. And our discipleship absolutely contributes to that worship and that love of God and that love for one another. And in discipling people, we're not just teaching them facts about Jesus. We're not just teaching them how to use their Bible and memorize the books of the Bible and how to go quickly and find chapter and verse. That's not the point of discipleship. The point of discipleship is that we're helping people Learn how to love God with all their heart. How to love their neighbor as themselves. How to love as Christ has loved us. How to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God so that we have a body of Christ that is purposeful, prepared, and powerful in her worship, in her praying, and in her going to the nations and making disciples so that the kingdom of God is spreading. Because this is what Jesus commanded us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that will happen as his church worships, prays, and obeys him and makes disciples. And does it joyfully, purposefully, with prepared hearts. Understanding that the power of all of it is in God. And that we are simply the vessels that power flows through. So as we go into this new year, that is my prayer for us as a church. That we would be a people that are purposeful, that are prepared, and that understand the power of worship, prayer, and discipleship. If we do that, We will all benefit. You will benefit in every area of your life. We will benefit as the body of Christ. And God will be glorified. And men and women in this city and in this community will receive the witness of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's prepare to come to the table. And as you do so, I point you to Jesus table is a declaration of his death Paul writes even until he comes again so it's also a declaration of his life it's a celebration of his coming which was not just in his birth but it is his presence with us now but it is also his future coming one day physically face to face Trust in Jesus. If you've never trusted in Jesus, God commands that you trust in Him. And as you trust in Him, you can come with assurance and with confidence that the grace of Jesus invites you to this table 
partake of this bread and this cup to celebrate his body and his blood. Church, I invite you to come to the table. I invite you to stand. I also want to do this. I want to invite you just to take a moment and look around. When Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians, he reminds the Corinthians to discern the body of Christ. And I don't believe he was telling them to discern the bread they were eating. I believe he was telling them to look around and see young and old, rich and poor, tall and short, skinny and wide, bald people and long-haired people, white people and brown people and black people, people of all diversity to look around and see the body of Christ. And what unites us is Christ. It's not our dress, it's not our hair, it's not our last name, it's not the color of our skin, it's not our bank account, it's not the neighborhood we live in. It is the Lord and Savior that has saved us. That's what makes us one in the body of Christ. And each week we celebrate the body of Christ. As we go into a new year, I want to remind you, you are part of the body of Christ. All of us. However knowledgeable you may be or however small your knowledge of God may be. You are in Christ. You are part of His body. And we are one with each other. This is really my point in talking about worship and prayer and discipleship. These are not things that we do individually by ourselves these are things we do together you may sit in the coffee shop by yourself having coffee with a friend discipling them in jesus but you don't do it apart from the body of christ you may worship god at home in your most private place but you don't do it alone you do it as part of the body of christ and this is why we come together and assemble together Because weekly, we should be reminded that we are not our own. We belong to Jesus. We are just simply part of, members of His body. He is the head. We are the body. And our coming together celebrates that. And we should, and we must learn how to draw strength from that so that we can go out and obey Him and worship Him and pray in power and see God move and bring transformation to our city, and to the lives around us. To be salt and to be light, to make a difference. That's why we're here. We're not just here to get along until we get to heaven. We're here to see His kingdom come and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we have work to do. One year is gone, a new one is coming. Let us purpose and prepare to make the most of it to live it in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. Amen.